Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. It's my job. It's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. This market has gone into forgive and forget mode. On a day where the Dow inched up 40 points, S&P advanced 0.35%. NASDAQ gained 0.61%. That's my take on what happened. That's my take on the winners. People are desperate to find stocks that haven't moved so they can buy them before they take off because so many other stocks have already taken off. Consider what worked today. Let's start with, well, maybe the most obvious. Let's start with Disney. The company reports tomorrow, and the market already likes what it sees. And it even seen it and likes what it sees. How's that even possible? For ages, people have been laser-focused on the fact that Disney's ESPN business keeps losing subscribers. But now there is a growing and budding recognition, emphasized by my colleague David Faber this very morning, that the court-cutting phenomena where people were canceling their cable subscriptions is waning. Meanwhile, ESPN's online streaming offering is gaining traction. And that's without even going into the fact that Disney's buying some key Fox assets that will transform the whole narrative from a story about lost subscribers to a story about tremendous untapped growth. Disney's stock has been running like crazy going into tomorrow's quarter, and you simply don't see this kind of move unless big institutional money managers are anticipating a blockbuster forecast. Just as important, buyers are forgiving Disney for having to pay so much for the Fox business. And they're forgetting that ESPN's been experiencing big declines in the past. That's how the stock had hit its 52-week high today, jumping a buck 85 to $115.94. And I wouldn't be surprised if you can take out its all-time high of 122 bucks in the not-too-distant future. This rally could be real homecoming for many investors, including yours truly. Because I've always said that if you want to get your kids interested in the stock market, you should buy them a share or two in a company they actually know and care about. And the company is Disney. And look, the forgiveness extends well beyond just the stock. I mean, look at this run on Facebook. Facebook, so hated just eight days ago. It folded 4% off an upgrade from Stiefel, which argued that the worst is over now that the uh, earnings have been reset. The term reset is a term of art. It means expectations have been lowered. Everyone knows this. So uh, it's time to buy. I mean, isn't that the same Facebook as it was before the quarter two weeks ago when we expected growth in excess of 40 percent? Well, wait a second. No, but it it doesn't matter. Even if Facebook ain't what it used to be, Stiefel claims that it's still not not a stock that deserves a trade in the 170s. I mean, they expect Facebook to generate 20 percent growth. No, we're near the 40 percent growth, 20 percent growth. That's still pretty darn good, especially for a mega cap stock. So remember, the stock at 215 overpriced, stock at 175 underpriced. Now, while we own Facebook for my charitable trust, and you can follow along with us by joining ActionOrdersPlus.com Club, we feel pretty taken advantage of, like pretty much everyone else who owns the darn thing. You don't see a lot of forgiveness here by Facebook's existing shareholders, but 
there's a whole other class of people, the non-shareholders, who are being converted to buyers here. And they're obviously more willing to forget. For example, they love the prospect that Facebook might be able to develop an eBay-like product, among other services, if they can get banks to share their customer information. A bit of news that came out today. You know what? I think this is, I mean, please. This one really stretches credulity. The banks aren't just going to hand over your data, especially not since Facebook was just raked over the coals for selling, turning around and selling your data to irresponsible third parties. So forget that story. Forget about Facebook asking the banks to share your info. What matters is that Facebook has reset expectations to a level where they can be beaten. Remember on Thursday, we heard Clorox talk about how it's putting now 60% of its advertising online. That used, they were the pioneer. They were 50, 40, 30, now 60. It's very much using Facebook as part of that mosaic. Last Friday, Kraft Heinz, hardly known as a visionary when it comes to getting in touch with younger consumers, made a point of telling people on his conference call that it's going digital in a big way. Again, you know what that means? That means Facebook. It's unavoidable. So while expenses are going up and the growth is decelerating, neither is heinous enough to scare away fresh buyers, meaning people who weren't caught in the huge sell-off, people who don't, uh, let's say, have to forget because they weren't part of the fiasco. Or how about this one, T-Mobile. When CEO John Ledger announced that he was going to merge his company with, with SoftBank-owned Sprint, it was met with intense derision. The stock sank like a stone, went from 65 to 55, seven days. Now, though, Fighting consensus that maybe the Justice Department will allow the third and fourth largest wireless carriers to merge in order to create a viable 5G competitor to ATT and Verizon. They're willing to forgive the idea of the merger and forget that the commentary at the time was a resounding no can do. Now, some of this is the infectious way that Ledger tells the tale. Yes, I mean, basically arguing that neither Sprint nor T-Mobile on their own will be able to withstand a real price war with ATT and Verizon. Some of it is that T-Mobile's quarter was so strong last week that it's worth owning even if the deal falls apart. Hence the 7.72% gain in the share price today. I think it's here to stay. Then there's the curious case of a company you might be familiar with from our show, Henry Schein. Here's a dental supply wholesaler that has several research firms predicting a near-death experience when it comes to their earnings because of an industry-wide slowdown. Leading the charge against it, Amazon, which has moved into undercut shine on price. Yet when Henry Schein reported this morning, the numbers showed a dramatic acceleration, not deceleration like the analysts look for, acceleration, and they caught people by surprise, especially the short sellers. We got a rip snorter here, and given how the bears seem to have no choice but to switch positions, I think the stock might have more room to run. Finally, you want the ultimate in forgive and forget? Okay, think about this. A week ago, Chipotle. Chipotle had to close an Ohio store after some customers experienced nausea and diarrhea. The stock dropped a quick near 7% as people said, well, here we go again. Assuming this would be like the E. coli outbreak that obliterated the stock three years ago. But this is a new Chipotle, people. One that's taking control of its own destiny. One that's better managed, much better managed. Company's doing innovative things. It's now under the tutelage of CEO Brian uh, Nickel, who did such a good job at Yum's Taco Bell before coming over to the, the natural and organic opposite of Chipotle. What did people think of Chipotle during this particular crisis? How about free guac on National Avocado Day? I mean, talk about an obscure holiday. I own a Mexican restaurant, Bar San Miguel in Brooklyn, and this holiday, it was news to me. How about free delivery for orders of $10 or more by DoorDash? I mean, what's a stomach illness in Ohio versus free guac and free delivery, for heaven's sake? Not much. So investors, investors forgave, they forgot, and they bought. And now the stock is above where it was before the incident. Of course, not everything can be forgiven. 
Newell, the house of disparate consumer brands, reported an ugly shortfall today, cut its forecast, sending the stock down 14%. They told us the trade war might cost them $100 billion. They said they're seeing weakness in their baby business from the closing of Babies R Us, not to mention some sudden negatives from their one stalwart writing group. Holy cow. Put it all together, and there was no forgiveness to be found. In fact, there was outright confusion on the part of the analysts who seemed to rebel against CEO Mike Polk's statement that net sales were, and I quote, a bit below our expectations. Whoa, that's the understatement of the year. The community of analysts turns into a community of jackals when you get this level of disappointment, and they were not appeased. I think Newell's shareholders, not done with the pain. Here's the bottom line. The overall theme of forgive and forget provided the impetus for a session that started out rocky but ended smooth as silk. As analysts and shareholders both decided to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and praise a host of formerly hated stocks. John in Florida. John. Booyah, Jim. Yo, what's up? Hey, man, Amazon's purchase of pill packs sent retail drug companies like Walgreens running to the hills. Walgreens is currently trading at around a three-year low with a P around 15, dividend yield around 275. Jim, seeing how it's going to take years for Amazon to develop and scale a drug delivery business, doesn't this fear of Amazon present a buying opportunity? Oh, John, you know what? All weekend, and then this today when I was at Walgreens, I said to myself, when am I going to wake up one day and see the stock at 75 because all the negatives are in? And the answer is probably not that long. I like your thinking. I think it's very similar to some other companies that were decimated by something that, that was an Amazon fear, like an AutoZone. And then it came right back. I'm with you. I think Walgreens, and this is a new position for me, is a buy. How about we go to Mike in Wisconsin? Mike! Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Love your show. Oh, uh, my question you. is on the retail store, Kohl's. With earnings coming up on the 21st, I'm wondering if there's still room for them to run until the end of the year. I got, a call, I got a conference call for uh, ActionLordsPlus.com club members, and I was going over what to say. And this Michelle Gass, the CEO, she is fabulous. And I think that if Kohl's comes down, it yields 3.36%. You buy some now, buy some after the quarter. I think she's going to do a good job. It's a very inexpensive stock. Don't forget to tie in with Amazon, where you have to return the goods to Amazon. You have to walk through the store. Let's go to, oh, my God, let's call, my, let's call me. Jim in New Jersey. Jim. Jim, thanks for taking my call. Hey, my question's on Bed Bath & Beyond. They've had a little pressure from Amazon and some tariffs. I think they buy some of their products from China. Yeah. On the upside, the chart watchers are seeing a possible bottom in the chart. they got a great leadership team, um, great balance sheet. My own experience is I walked into a face value and beyond last week, which is a Harman company that's is a business they started at the end of last year. Very perceptively, they located it right by a Whole Foods and a Trader Joe's. And they're quite simply outselling those stores on things like laundry soap right. and trash bags. So it seems to me like those can be some irrelevant uh, catalysts well, for sales. So I bought Jim, here's the stock. problem. Jim, here's the problem. I agree that it's bottom. I have no catalyst that is going to send it higher. I would drop the B and buy the stock of Best Buy. BBY instead of BBBY. There you go. All right. Now, there's power in forgiving and forgetting. And we saw that power in action big time in today's winners. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, Andrew Newey announced he's stepping aside as PepsiCo's CEO after some 12 years at the helm. What it means for the company and for you going forward. Then pack your bags and an extra bottle of sunscreen. I'm eyeing Speedy to see if the company finally has its groove back. And a company that's bringing the bomb market into the digital age at last and with transparency. So stick with 
Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Jeans. They're an American staple. No article of clothing is more closely linked to our nation's history. Today, denim's a $90 billion industry, but that success didn't come easy. I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery Show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. And in our latest series, we're unzipping how Levi's, Lee, and Wrangler managed to take workman's wear from the frontier to the runway and closets around the world. Join us for Denim Wars. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. PepsiCo CEO Andrew Nui announced her retirement today, and it's truly a tectonic shift, not just for her company, but for the way we do business itself. Nui's a pioneer in so many ways, especially when it comes to the candor with which she approached being both a CEO and a mom, and how hard it is to juggle both. We just don't get a lot of CEOs who own up to how difficult the job is, let alone how much more difficult it can be for a female CEO. Her honesty, I don't know. It's part of her incredible strength as PepsiCo's leader. It's a bittersweet story. Under Nui's tutelage, PepsiCo has outperformed the vast majority of the companies in her industry, something that would most likely have been inconceivable given a portfolio of snacks and sodas that were growing outdated, including these right up here by the hour. Since becoming CEO, she added a billion-dollar brand every other year, bringing the number from 17 to 22, including Pepsi Match, Max, by the way, that is, you know, no calories, uh, a diet Mountain Dew. Oh, and PepsiCo's dividend nearly tripled from a buck sixteen in 2006 to $3.17 this year, a compound annual growth rate of almost 10%. That's why it always had a big dividend, big yield, because they kept up in it. But these really don't tell the full tale of PepsiCo's transformation under Nui. Let me give you my story with Nui because it illustrates just how she created a true powerhouse, while many other food and beverage companies have dropped by the wayside. A little more than 10 years ago, in a segment of Stop Trading with Aaron Burnett, I said that I'd thrown a sleepover party for my daughter's swim team. I'd stock baskets all over the house with Doritos and Cheetos and Lay's potato chips, and the kids studiously avoided all of them. I was shocked. When I was that age, we would have gone through these potato chips and these Cheetos and stuff like a pack of wild animals. But I realized that these kids represented the future, and the future looked grim for these kinds of unhealthy snacks. I didn't know injured them, but she called me right after the segment and told me that I hadn't done my homework. I hate when that happens. Not that long after, I visited PepsiCo's Aberdeen Proving Grounds, coincidentally where our military has its proving grounds, and I saw the future. Sustainable snacks with very little sodium, very little fat, made in a factory that had no water footprint because it used the excess water from the potatoes it cut. In other words, she saw the future coming, a future of sustainability and healthy eating when few others did. Here's what she told me later on the show. I don't know if uh, the uh, anticipation of trends was anything to do with gender or ethnicity or nationality, Jim. I think it's just that PepsiCo as a company has had a history of strategic acuity. And as a company, we've always anticipated mega trends and skated towards those trends and then tried to you know, proactively shape the portfolio. I think Andrew was being way too self-effacing. 
Her performance with the Purpose Program and her notion of doing well by doing good are her real hallmarks. As Nui has pioneered the notion of healthier options while reducing greenhouse gas emissions and being at the forefront of diversity, these moves don't pay off immediately. But they're still good ones. Take a listen. You can't just focus on every quarter and say, if one quarter is not up to snuff, oh, something should be terrible. That's not the way you build sustainable companies. That's not the way you build iconic American companies. And God knows, as a country, we need big companies that are performing very well to make sure our country remains strong. Lately, there's been a terrific run in the consumer packaged goods stocks. It's a run that started with a nice upside surprise by New East PepsiCo. Now the company will be led by uh, Ramon LaGuerta. Now, he's an insider with tremendous international experience. I think the rally in the stock has to do with a belief that he'll do something radical to unlock value. My charitable trust has a position in the stock. We're grateful for today's game. But let's not get ahead of the story. Nui's he's been bringing out value the whole way. If LaGuerta can follow in her giant footsteps, then I'd be thrilled. It would be great. However, I'm not interested in short-term pops. We want long-term stability and sustainability. We want what Indra's given us for years. So we offer her our congratulations as her tenure closes, and we wish her all the luck in the world as she carries on her championing of larger causes than just faithfully delivering the better-than-expected earnings per share that PepsiCo has given us for so many years. Steve in Missouri, Steve. Hello, Professor Kramer. How are you? I am good, Steve. How about you? Good, thank you. It's a little hot here in Missouri, though. That could be. Hey, my question is about National Beverage, ticker Fizz, F-I-Z-Z. I've been in this stock for about a year. It had a plunge in late June on some uh, class action lawsuits and false and misleading statements. And about 24% of the float is short. Right, right. But you know what? The business is good. The last quarter was terrific. We've kicked around the idea of doing a story. I keep waiting for the stock to come in. It doesn't come in. But I will say this about these guys. They do have tremendous momentum. Okay, Indra Nui's retirement is not only a tectonic shift for PepsiCo, but for the way we do business itself. Congratulations, Indra. We wish you the best. All right, much more Mad Money Head. Is your next vacation about to get a whole lot more profitable? Find out if it's time to book a one-way ticket with Expedia. Then I'm sitting down with the man behind the revolution in the bond market. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO of Market Access. And it's a company that was up 40% last year, and you may never heard of it. Hey, you're lost. I'll reveal the name just ahead. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Does it remind you of the, of the fines that the yeah. big bank, where did that money? <laughs> the uh, fines. Did you get a check? I know. Did you get a check from Jamie? No, I didn't. How about from Corbett? I didn't get, did any get anything. Checks. No, Good how checks. about one yet? You didn't get a check? Nope. Well, there you go. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Now that we've had a bit of time for the dust to settle, how the heck did Expedia, Expedia suddenly get its groove back? A week and a half ago, the online travel agent reported a blowout quarter 
and the stock caught fire, surging from $125 to $137 for a 9.5% gain in a single session. What made this so impressive? Well, late last year, Expedia fell out of favor with the Wall Street Fashion Show, and it only got worse as the stock collapsed in February during the market-wide sell-off. To many people, this suddenly looked like a troubled company. It had been red hot. Because longtime CEO Dara Khosrowshahi had been hired away by Uber. He'd been fantastic at Expedia. And after he left, the company put up two straight disappointing quarters. Investors worried that Expedia was spending far too much money to grow its business. It was investing. Stock plunged from an all-time high of $161 last fall, when it was total darling, to less than 100 bucks at its February lows. This became one of the most hated stocks in this market. Now, over the next few months, stocks started to bounce, but it wasn't until late last month that the bearish thesis was at last laid to rest, when Expedia shot the lights out with an excellent quarter and regained the benefit of the doubt. So what exactly made this comeback possible? More importantly, could Expedia have more room to run? I think there is more upside here. I think you should focus on this because let me tell you why it's a good buy. First of all, let me remind you of what Expedia actually does. On top of Expedia.com, they also own Hotels.com and Orbitz and Travelocity. They have an affiliate network that helps connect airlines, travel agencies, and corporate travel companies with hotels. They own HomeAway, the huge online vacation rental marketplace. They bought that a couple years ago, really kind of made it into the next Airbnb. They own a big chunk of Travago, the international hotel meta search platform that trades as an independent company. Expedia helps you book cruises. They help you book cars. They're the second largest player in the industry behind the Titanic Booking Holdings, a.k.a. the company formerly known as Priceline, that I've also been recommending. So what went wrong here? Why was Expedia stock such a dog starting late last year? For starters, it was a real blow when the company lost Dara. Dara Khosrowshahi is perhaps maybe one of those people out west, like Sacha, Dara, Cheryl, Mark. You know, these are the guys that are all one-name people that people really just say, that's the person. And when he left, when he got poached by Uber, it gave us this guy Mark uh, Okerstrom. He's the old CFO, and he took over as the new CEO, and he was a complete black box. I mean, you never want to lose a bankable chief executive officer, even if the successor knows what he's doing. When Wall Street trusts your CEO, it's easier for your stock to get the benefit of the doubt if the numbers aren't quite up to snuff. Which brings me to the next issue. Expedia started getting hit with a series of problems. There was that, the intense hurricane season late last summer, and that really hurt the travel business. Then Trivago started to see more competition from Priceline, which translated into a nasty revenue shortfall in the first quarter. Expedia reported with Okerstrom at the helm. Kind of took people by surprise. Making matters worse, the company saw a monster 22% increase in its selling and marketing expenses last year far outpacing its 15% revenue growth. That really hurt Expedia's margins. Coincidentally, that's what drove Facebook stock down. It was that increase in expenses and the, the uh, decline in the rate of growth of, of revenues that so spooks people. Now, management explained that these expenditures were all part of a plan. A lot of it involved migrating to the cloud, adopting new technology to help make their advertising more targeted. Speed has always been big on making major investments and growing the business. And Wall Street sometimes gets overzealous in punishing growth companies for necessary spending. But that's not a good look when you're also reporting revenue shortfalls. So Expedia really fell out of favor late last October when the company reported a small top and bottom line miss. The problem? Management slashed their guidance for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, cutting the forecast from the 10 to 15% range down to the mid to high single digits. Ouch! 
That was a brutal combination of bad weather, Trivago weakness, and higher expenses. A lot of people washed their hands of this one. You started seeing analysts fret about how the whole online travel agency business might be on a slower growth trajectory, which is why the stock really got hammered. Now, fast forward to February, and Expedia posts another shuffle. Holy cow. This time, a small top line missed, coupled with a huge earnings disappointment. Get this, 84 cents. Wall Street was looking for buck fifteen, And anyone hoping for growth, well, the growth to pick up, Nah, management EBITDA, uh, its forecast remain grim. Looking for just 6 to 11% growth, that's hardly, a, that's hardly a big growth company, right? I mean, I mean make measures worse. Expedia reported right into the teeth of the big February sell-off, which is how the stock plunged from the low 130s in late January all the way down to 98 bucks in its intraday low on February 9th. Basically, the bears... Figured that the business was slowing dramatically, but rather than trying to cut costs and trim the fat, no, Expedia decided to double down on its troubled business. That made it even more of a hateful story. So how did the company pull off this recent comeback and everybody hates it? How did you get to forgive and forget like I talked about at the top of the show? Well, some of it started in April when the analysts began to consider, hey, maybe these huge investments that the company's making, maybe they're smart. Maybe they're actually going to pay off. Maybe the guys at Expedia know what they're doing, and they're not just a bunch of drunken sailors. When the company reported its first quarter results at the end of April, the numbers were better than many people had feared. Even if they weren't totally spectacular, we got a modest top line beat and a smaller than anticipated earnings loss. That's how it starts, people. That's the beginning. Just as crucial, management announced a 15 million share buyback. Now, that's equal to roughly 10% of the share count, which was a real vote of confidence. I always look for something that's that big as a magnitude. So the stock surged more than 8% on the news. But even after its first good quarter in a while, there were still many investors who doubted that Expedia could return to its old growth trajectory. That's why the quarter these guys reported a week and a half ago was so important and why I wanted to do this piece tonight. It proved beyond a shadow of doubt that Expedia is once again firing on every single cylinder. The company posted inline revenue up 11%, but that translated into colossal 49-cent earnings beat. I thought it was a mistake when I read it. Off of an 89-cent basis, gross bookings increased by 13%. There's some growth year-over-year operating income for the core online travel agency business was up 19%. Home waste business more than doubled. How about that 15 million uh, share buyback that I mentioned? They already repurchased purchased 4 million shares year-to-date. Shows you how they think it's undervalued. Remember how in February Expedia guided for 6 to 11% growth in the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization? Well, for this quarter, that number was up to 18%, which is why management slightly raised the forecast. Although, after seeing these numbers, I think CEO Mark Okerstrom is simply being conservative. I think he's practicing UPOD, under-promise and over-deliver. On the conference call, he told us the company has great momentum going into the second half. In short, all of that spending Expedia's been doing to bolster its business, you better believe it's working! And make no mistake, Expedia still has a ton of firepower to expand in the rest of the world. There are countries like France and Germany where Priceline has deals with many, many more hotels than Expedia does. That means if these guys can simply keep signing up more additional partners, they can probably take a decent chunk of market share. Oh, in the home away business, it's absolutely glorious. And man, was it bad for so long. Put all together, the stock's trading just 21 times next year's earnings estimates, despite having a 16% long-term growth rate. That is dirt cheap. I think the price journey's multiple could end up being smaller than it seems because the estimates could be too low. Bottom line, the recent rally in Expedia is an object lesson, which is why I had to tell you about this and why you shouldn't panic when you're dealing with a high-quality stock in a growth industry. The stock sold off hard when the company stumbled. 
but it's now made an incredible rebound. I think it's got much more upside here. As Expedia is inexpensive, and the stock's still more than 20 bucks off its all-time highs, even though it's a better company than when it, when it had those highs. I'd be a buyer right here, and then I'd buy some more if the darn thing would ever come down. Let's go to Erkin in Pennsylvania. Erkin. Good evening, Jim. Long-time follower, and I wanted to thank you for your many years of uh, entertainment and educating the uh, public. You're very kind, and yes, it is that order. If I don't entertain, then no one's going to learn. Thank you. I'm calling about my position in American Airlines Group, AAL. Yeah. I purchased a sizable position when it came out of bankruptcy about three or four years ago. I've seen the airline stock struggle, hitting a high of $59 earlier this year, and it seemed to have done nothing since then. With the current geopolitical issue with um, oil and right. competition from international low-cost carriers, I want to know if American Airlines will ever fly well, again. Let's put it this way. I don't want you to sell it down here because it is way too low. It's not as high quality as uh, Southwest Air, which is making a comeback. That would be my preferred one. But this thing's too low, and if oil were ever break down, you get a nice trade-up. That said, I am a bull short-term on oil, so I don't expect anything good to happen for a little while. Let's go to Jim in California. Jim. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to ask you about Cedar Fair, symbol F-U-N. Oh, man, they got to uh, come on the show, Jim, because that was a bad quarter. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Bad. I was going back and forth with my writing partner, Matt Horween, and we believed that first. I saw SeaWorld, too, which had a good number, that something is very wrong at Cedar Fair. And we can't pin it down because the consumer is doing quite well. They have to come back on air and explain to us what's going on. When a high-quality stock like Expedia takes a nosedive, you check in. You know what? This rebound that we're getting, it's real. And I don't think it's done. Much more made money at, including my exclusive with a company up nearly 500% over the past five years. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO of Market Access to see if it can move even higher. Then, Perk and Elmer's focus on innovating for a healthier world. Hey, there's a broad theme. But can it also innovate for a healthier portfolio? I'm sitting down with the CEO for a delightful company. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. to explain the odd recent decline in market access holdings. Last December, I introduced you to this company that's trying to revolutionize the bond market. Market access is an electronic trading platform for bonds. Basically, they want to introduce more liquidity into the system and make the whole process of buying fixed income securities simpler for traders and investors, maybe for you. It's a real good idea, and that's why the stock has been such an incredible long-term performer. It's up more than 250% over the past five years. But, in this big but, in recent months, the stock has fallen off a cliff. The stock is now down nearly 20% from its all-time highs back in March. What makes this decline so tough to get your arms around? It's really hard to pinpoint what's causing it. The company keeps beating Wall Street's expectations, although the beats maybe aren't quite as big as they used to be. Still, the latest quarter reported a couple of weeks ago was pretty strong. Could this simply be a case where a turbocharged stock is taking a temporary breather while it grows into its own valuation? Let's take a closer look with Rick Buffet. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Market Access Holdings. Get a better sense of how this company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Buffet, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you. Thank you, Jim. Good to see you. Thank you so much. All right, Rick, it is a bit of a quandary. Uh, you are delivering and delivering and delivering. But I think a lot of people will think, you know what, it's a calmer time. And if it's yeah. calm, we don't need market access. I think that's a wrong view. Yeah, well, there's certainly some of that going on in the short term. I think bond markets have been a little quieter than we're used to. 
uh, we feel really good about the first half of the year in terms of our long-term priorities and the results that we achieved. Uh, more clients are using the system than ever before. Our all-to-all module continues to grow. Our international business has never been better. Emerging markets up 30%. But overall, we're in this period of relatively low volatility right. around interest rates and credit spreads, and it's just not generating the kind of secondary trading that we're used to. Well, I thought of you this weekend when you were coming home when Jamie Dimon said we might have 5% interest rates. And I said to myself, well, market access doesn't really care about the, the, uh, the direction. But the idea that there could be some movement would certainly be positive for you guys. We hope he's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think the odds uh, favor rates heading higher. As you know, we've seen a pretty good movement in short-term rates right. uh, over the last year, but less so at the long end of the curve. So we have a very flat curve right now. But uh, right. the one thing that, that I'm watching closely is the end of quantitative easing. And it looks like the schedule will have that finished by the end of this year. To me, that's a big change for the market. Right. And I think the ride's going to be a little bumpy when that ends. Well, how about the idea that the government's going to issue a trillion dollars in debt? There's going to be auctions coming. I remember in the old days when I used to trade bonds, auctions were something that just drove huge volatility. Also, that could be good for you guys. That's, that should be really good because the combination of deficits up, treasury issuance growing again, and the central bank stepping away from quantitative means right. puts it back in the private market. And that's where I do think we get better trading conditions and better volatility. In the meantime, during a, a, what is a relatively calm period, you've been taking share from everybody. We have. You know, it, if you look over the last 10 years, there has been a consistent movement year in and year out of investors trading more electronically and right. moving business away from the phone. And we see the same thing this year, whether it's high grade, high yield, emerging markets or euros, market share electronic, electronically continues to move up. Now, I, I do want to talk about the global electronic platform because you've got pre-trade price discovery, trade execution, post-trade services, tracks, and straight-through processing. Are any of these in turbocharge regardless of the direction, or the, or the quiet nature of the market? You know, the majority of our revenue still comes from uh, trading commissions. Right. Uh, so 75 or 80 percent of company revenue is coming through trading volume. I think the one to watch is data. We feel really good about uh, the data tools that we've created for our clients, helping them with price discovery on the platform. And longer term, we think we have a bigger data revenue opportunity. Today, it's a relatively small part of what we do. Okay, so can you explain to our viewers who would think, well, wait a second, price discovery. I look at the treasuries. Everyone knows what the price is. How important this is for some of the more abstruse uh, instruments that, that people trade? Well, it, it, it's, it's incredibly important because the, uh, the corporate bond market, if you look at high grade and high yield, you've got something like 150,000 unique QCIPs. Yeah. And if you look at the municipal bond market, it's over a million QCIPs. So these infrequently traded bonds, it's very important to have data tools that give you a very good indication pre-trade of where they should trade. When I was a, uh, a hedge fund manager, I always used to say if the thing wasn't in the newspaper, I'm not going to buy it. But there are a lot of very difficult to value bonds that I want market access to help me with as an investor in a hedge fund. I mean, because people can make up their own prices. You end that process, right? You've got the ability to give a real and honest price. That's right, right. We've not only built the data tools, we've made it easier than ever to canvas the market for the best price through our all-to-all -all trading module combined with all the dealer liquidity that's on the system. Here's how different it is than, than your early days okay. in the bond markets. Last, last quarter alone, do you know that we had over 750 firms providing liquidity on market access? Oh. So this, this, we've really widened the funnel 
so that we've created a real marketplace and not just a one-way street going down limited dealer balance sheets. Well, I'm betting that there's more volatility. If I bet there's more volatility, I think I should bet by owning market access. Thank you to Rick Buffet, Chairman CEO of Market Access. They're the best they do. The best, they're best in the biz, but they need a little more volatility. That money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. What's up, Ralph? Goes one of those teams. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Clarence, let's start with Daniel and Georgia. Daniel. How about them dogs, Jim? I'm talking about lending trees. Ticker symbol TR. Well, look, it's been red hot. It's going up a lot. Doug Lebton did a great job, but then we got hit by higher mortgage rates, and then boom, boom, boom. It just can't find a footing, and that is the same case with Zillow this very evening. So I say don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. Don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. Larry don't buy. in Connecticut, Larry. Yes, booyah, Jim. I love the show, Jim. Well, thank you. And I want to thank you for taking my call. I have an interest in Philip Morris and need to know a little bit about what you think of the future. Well, you know what I tell you, I'm worried about Jewel. I'm worried about all these different things that have to do with the alternative cigarettes, and that's why I have walked away from the group. Plus, I've got to tell you, I can no longer in good conscience recommend a cigarette stuff. I just can't. You know, let somebody else do it. it's, It's not about money when it comes to that. Let's go to Andrew in New York. Andrew. Yes, Jim Kramer. Booyah. I just want to know about OPKO. Which one? Uh, OPK. Oh, OPK Health. Look, it's at five bucks. It's up from three. Uh, ever since they bought Bioreference Lab, it's been a dog. Sorry, Dr. Phil Frost. You better come on and explain why we should buy OPCO Health. Tom in New Jersey. Tom. Hello, Jimmy. This is Tom and Joanne, Lafayette, New Jersey. Oh, there hey, you buddy. go, Lafayette. We are here. What's up? Hey, I got pinched by uh, U.S. Steel, and I, I buy, sell, or hold. What do you think? No, I don't like steel. I, well, that's what we call it, letter X. Uh, I do like Nucor, but I have to tell you, all the steel stocks are going down with the belief that the economy is slower, and therefore they won't do well because of autos and because of infrastructure. I have to admit I'm willing to take the siege that is Nucor, but I couldn't take the pain that is letter X. How about Richard in California? Richard! Hey, Jim. Thank thanks you. for taking my call. No problem. What? Want to get your thoughts on the trade desk? Is it still a buy? That is the most red-hot stock in the universe, and I think they got another couple good quarters ahead, so I think you can stay long. John in New York. John. Jimmy, booyah. Booyah. Got a good one. I picked it up in March. You recommended it. EPR. Oh, uh, entertaining properties? Yeah, it's good. Look, a lot of the real estate investors have come back. That one in particular, that one was tarred and feathered for the wrong reasons. It actually was not that bad a quarter. They're back, and so is the preferred, by the way. That offers even better yield. Let's go to Nina in Maryland. Nina. Hi, Jim. Thanks for everything. Of course. How about Enbridge Energy Partners, EEP? I have all right. Quite a uh, you know, this is the 12% yielder one. They're putting all these together. I think it is a buy. I like Enbridge very much. I have to tell you, the pipelines are making a major comeback. I like WPC. I also like this combination. That is ETPETE. All right, one more. Let's go to Kerry in South Carolina. Kerry. Hi, Jim. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Of course. Uh, why not Nokia? Okay, it's Look, a, this is a $5 a, stock. People are attracted to it. Believe me, it's a $50 stock. You'd be saying, sell, 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 and sell, And that sell. would be right. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. 
Cats last Thursday's remarkable run and longtime Kramer fave Perkin Elmer. That's PKI for you home gamers. Here's a company that makes life science and diagnostic equipment with a stock that voted 8% single session after putting a fantastic quarter. Darn thing is now up nearly 20% year to date, and it's been a big long-term outperformer. It's up 135% over the past five years. That's double the return you get from the S&P 500. Now, I've been a believer in this story for a long time, but even I was shocked by per- Perkin Elmer's most recent numbers. The company posted a five-cent earnings beat off of an 86-cent basis, higher than expected revenue, up 29% year over year. A lot of that growth comes from acquisitions, but when you drill down both the Perkin and Elmer's, Elmer's divisions, life sciences, and diagnostics, they give you 10% organic growth. That's really impressive. Oh, management raised a full-year earnings forecast. No wonder the stock caught fire. So can it keep climbing? Let's check in with Robert Friel. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Perkin Elmer for the first time in about seven years to learn more about where the company's headed. Mr. Friel, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Yeah, good to see you. Thank man. you so much for coming on. Great to be here. All right, Thanks I'm going to quote a piece of research. I never see this. I never see this. Here's a research. This is Perkin Elmer. Uh, from Jeffries. They, the guy says, a Perkin Numbers 10% organic base, uh, base business growth in second quarter made a mockery of the consensus view plus 6%. How did you make a mockery of the 6%? <laughs> Well, I don't know if we made a mockery of it, but we're, uh, we're very pleased with the performance in the second quarter. And as you, as you mentioned, it was broad-based. So it was in both right. businesses. And I think what's fundamentally driving that is probably three factors. First of all, we've been on a path for the last couple of years to really improve the portfolio and focus the business in those higher growth markets, more attractive. So I think that's been very helpful, and you're starting to see the benefits of that benefits of very good macro trends impacting Mm -hmm. those markets. The second aspect is, again, we've taken up our R&D spending. We're driving innovative new products into the marketplace, and they're starting to sort of see the the growth that's that's, uh, driving that. And then the last one is, I think we are executing better as a company. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the foundation of a great company is the organization. And I think we've got a terrific organization. What's interesting, five years ago, I wrote a book, Get Rich Carefully, where I said maybe you have to split the company up to get the valuation. It turns out that the two divisions, if you can explain to people, really do work uh, quite well. But the market just wasn't giving you the credit until now. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, look, that was one way of creating value, I think, splitting the company up a couple years ago. But I think we felt that. If you look at the core capabilities of what Perkin Elmer does, it really gets down to detection, imaging, and then we also do some software and informatics. So we have the ability to really detect uh, very accurately, very quickly, very small microscopic uh, items. And that allows our customers to really make a dramatic impact in uh, in health sort of broadly defined. And so what we're trying to do is take those capabilities Leverage those in the fundamentally three markets, and maybe we can talk about those. But I do want to say, and when you say informatica, informatics, you're really talking about artificial intelligence. Part of eventually it'll go to that. Right, right now, what... right, eventually, I think that's the opportunity. But today, what happens is, as the detection and imaging instruments get stronger and stronger, more sensitive, they generate more data, and so you need the informatics to help make sense of that. Eventually, with deep learning and artificial intelligence, you're actually going to be able to have a lot of that done by the machine. It'll be more accurate, much quicker. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of, um, let's say, screening, in vitro screening, a screening where in China people seem to be crazy about your stuff. Yeah, we've had very strong growth in China. And again, if you look at the sort of three end markets we operate in, starting, and I would say this is broadly defining health. So you start with 
what we eat, what we drink, right. what we breathe, right? So about 25% of our business goes in looking for contaminants and pollutants in sort of the environment, right? So that's very important. Sadly, really important. Right. So, I mean, for example, we can look at um, adulterants in your food within 30 seconds or whether your water has, unfortunately, lead or arsenic in it. Right. Another 40% of the revenue goes, and then if you are sick and you go to the physician and you want to get diagnostic testing, we supply tests there. And again, it's all around being accurate and being able to describe what the potential disease state is. And then if you are sick and you go to the doctor and he prescribes drugs, about 35% of our revenue is focused in pharmaceutical companies and helping them see inside the cells, actually real-time live cells, and understand the mechanism of the drug. So... As, as China has been investing in healthcare, we've been a big beneficiary of it. Well, I have to just, in the time remaining, I'm reading this book by this fellow, Carrie, about Theranos. You must have known that nobody could be doing that. The claims they were making, you were the most sophisticated, maybe Illumina, maybe Thermo, maker, but probably of diagnosis of anyone. You must have known it was impossible what well, they were doing. Well, you know, it's doing. interesting you say that. A number of years ago, one of our board members came to me and said, you know, what's, what is this? And we spent a lot of time, first of all, trying to find any kind of scientific or te technical knowledge about the company. Very hard. <laughs> Very hard. They're and, opaque. And we, sort of, and we sort of concluded that we didn't understand it. And so since we didn't understand it, we stayed away, fortunately. But, you know, it was, uh, as, as, as we're finding out now, it was, uh, there wasn't much substance behind it. No, and yours is totally substantive. And everybody uses you. I want to congratulate you for just bringing out all this value. You did it yourself. You are just a, you have a remarkable company. Great. Really well, fantastic. thank you very much. That's Robert Friels, Perkin Elmer's chairman, president, CEO. This is the kind of company I always talk about, diagnostics, you know, how much I think that's a great theme, uh, life sciences, food markets. It's all right there for you, man. Money's back here for the break. It's a very odd day. I mean, I watched this Facebook all day, and the recommendation really wasn't that compelling. It just seems like people can't get enough of social media, even when they're down. So I think that stock still has a few more points up before I know I'm going to get cold feet. I notice how Amazon went up a lot, and that's when I've done a lot of work on over the weekend. That is still a buy, even as I know it, let's just say it's moved up a lot. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.